You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I'm the host for this episode, Jeff Harmon, and I am joined by my friend Brent Bergherm. How are you, Brent? Hey, doing well. Good to be here. Excellent. Thanks so much for covering last week. <laughs> I was gone. I'm, I'm glad you were able to do that. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I had Juan Pons on, and we had a lot of good time talking about the Sony system. Yeah, excellent. I, I listened to it. You guys were great. That was that was a good episode. Uh, I'm excited about it, but I, I think I'm like more excited about this episode than I've been over a bunch <laughs> for a while. Mainly because I finally got out and shot. You know, I, I went out and did some shooting. <laughs> oh man, it was so fun. I miss I miss it. Uh, the The world's changed a lot, as we all are aware, and I don't want to dwell on that part of it. But that's been uh, you know a challenge, and and I haven't been other than some senior shoots. I did do some senior shoots uh, earlier this spring. Um, I hadn't been out to do any kind of landscape in a long time, and I was able to do some this past week. So it was really fun, and, and we're going to talk cool. about that. Um, my family and I went on a family vacation to Southern Utah. We drove down there and. Uh, I was really glad to see people doing a really good job of like, you know, the social distancing and, and doing what they can to make sure that, that, uh, we're all very responsible and it was good, but I also got to finally like get out and, and choose some things. And there were some things that happened that I thought, even while I was doing it, I thought ah, this would be really fun to talk about on the podcast. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. We're going to awesome. talk about this. We're going to share some, I'm going to share some shots. If we have time, we'll see how long it takes. I have a lot of stories that go along with these, but um, and we're going to share we're going to share some images. You're going to want to go to the website so you can see the images that we're talking about. Um, and I'm going to share like some settings, but I don't. I want to make a, a point about the settings we're sharing here, not because this is the prescription of how it is you go and get that shot at that location. Like it, this location is a very popular one in Southern Utah. It's in a city called Moab. Um, Arches National Park is there. And uh, and then there's a Dead Horse Point is another thing that's really, really close. And Canyonlands. There's a lot of really cool stuff in southern Utah that you can go and see, and, and in Moab in particular. So there's plenty of listeners probably have been there. There's plenty that may be going there in the future because it's a very good place to go and, and do some photography. But um, And, and I, I want to share these settings not because it's, like I said, the thing that you should use when you're there. Every environment changes. The The situation you're in, the lighting you have, all of that's different all the time. But it's a good uh, education for what settings I arrived at for my specific situation. And then more importantly, I want to go through the mindset. That's why I really enjoy doing these how I got the shot kinds of episodes to share what my mindset is more than the actual settings that aren't as nearly as important. And what decisions I'm making, what challenges I faced because I think that's it's a it's a difficult thing for photographers to take what we talk about on the show here, and then they go to shoot and they're like, "Wait, I can't remember what they said they did or what settings they had, or I have this problem that came up that they've never talked about, and I don't know what to do about it." It's it's a big challenge. So I like having this discussion. And Brent, as we go along with this, um, as as I'm sharing stuff, I'd love to hear like if you would have made different decisions. And, sure. and what it is that uh, maybe you would have you would have done something a little differently because that this isn't math, <laughs> yeah. This is an it's, art. There's not a right. right answer. There's not a one way to do this kind of thing. It is creative. It's art, and there's more than one way to to go and do all of this. So keep all that in mind as we go through this. We'll we'll see. Maybe let listeners let us know either in the Facebook group or in the comments on the the post over at the website. Let us know if you enjoyed this, if you'd like to see some more of it as we go out and shoot and, and talk through it. All right, let's start off. So Moab, Utah, Arches. And I think I'm betting a lot of people listening to this have probably seen Delicate Arch. It's a really pretty famous landmark in southern Utah, in Moab. And um, I had been there when I was really young, but this was the first time as an adult that I'd, I'd been to the park to see this thing. Um, we, we went to the park and Brent, have you ever been to Arches? 
I actually have not. Okay. And it's definitely one of those on my list. But no, I have not been there myself. All right. So you go uh, in, into the park, and it's it's a pretty decent drive to get there and, and um, going through Canyonlands areas or, or lots of redstone. It's, it's really cool. Even just driving to it is pretty amazing to see it. And then you, you get into this parking lot and you have about, a, I think it's almost a two mile one way hike to get to Delicate Arch. And they make it pretty scary because Moab is in a, it's definitely like significant desert climate. Right. And and it's hot. Like we were here in the beginning of August, end of July, beginning of August. It was over 100 degrees. Now it's not a humid 100 degrees. So that kind of helps, I guess. But it's still really, really hot. And then these rocks, they like absorb all of this heat throughout the oh, whole yeah. day. And then they are given off this heat like all night. There's no relief. Like it is hot all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really hot. So they have all these warnings in the parking lot there of like every person in, in particular, I didn't see this anywhere else in the park, but for this particular hike, they said you need to have two liters of water with every person needs to have two liters of water with them. And, um, th- like it, it made me worry. I was like, I don't, I don't remember this. When I was a kid and I did this, that didn't seem like that big a deal. And I didn't have two liters of water with me. So I was like, hmm, I don't know, but I think we'll be fine. Let's just go. <laughs> so, so we did, and and it was fine. Um, I would have liked to have more water with me, but it, we were okay. I'm they. I'm sure it was just like, you know, as as people don't do smart things, it's it's just better to have water with you. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, so you go do this hike. Um, the, you you gain in elevation a lot as you're doing this hike. It's it's kind of a big, a strenuous. It's it's fairly strenuous. It's a good solid two mile, almost two mile hike to get there. And some of it over up over some slick rock for, I bet it's about a quarter of a mile of just big, steep slick rock that you have to walk over to get there. And, and it, I, I had all of my camera gear with me cause I didn't, I couldn't remember since the last time I was there exactly what I was going to need with my lenses. I didn't, I didn't know if I'm going to just need wide, if I'm going to need zoom, what, what am I going to, I don't know what I'm going to want. So I brought everything. I had a lot of stuff with me and I'm going to talk about a bag that I like to use while I was doing this. It was kind of heavy and it was a, it was kind of a tough hike because of how heavy the gear was, but man, so worth it once I got there to be able to take a picture. So we, we went, uh, we thought I want to be there at sunset and it turns out like I should have looked into this beforehand. Yeah, sunset's not the time you want to be there. <laughs> the sun's <laughs> on the wrong side of this stuff. You're there's there's like cliffs surrounding Delicate Arch. This is like I said, it's kind of elevated up, and you don't have a ton of room to negotiate uh, changing perspectives. Like you can't go to the opposite side of the arch um, where the sunset would be showing through the arch and take a picture, you only have the one direction that you can face on this. And that's more to the east for sunrise would be incredible. Sunset, not so much. So I got some pictures of the arch. I was there. I had to take some pictures. They're not impressive. <laughs> they're, they're very plain. There's nothing that special about it. I do have one where the moon is up. And it looks like it's total daytime because I did uh, a fairly long exposure, but it's it's really dusk in the in the photo that I'll put in the show notes. Nothing too too special. And then another one that's kind of more zoomed in, and the moon had risen enough that it's not in the photo anymore. But they they just you know it's fun to be there, fun to see the arch, really cool landmark, not particularly impressive kinds of photos. But the reason I'm sharing the story is. Because I think this is a, a good lesson. I'm, I'm sure listeners have heard this a ton. When you are looking at the thing in front of you, just pay attention to what other opportunities there might be around you. And there were two significant opportunities for much better photos around me than the arch. That's why you're there. It's the main attraction. But it wasn't particularly impressive. The, the environment, the, the situation wasn't a, a great one. But I did have behind me, um, in the pathway, the trail that we hiked on to get there, um, as you looked back at one point through the night, and it was probably about a 10 minute window was all we had with this. The sky was just on fire where hmm. the sun was going down. And man, if I could have had that behind the arch, oh, would it have been a stunning photo? Yeah. But you can't get behind the arch to go and get that. So 
making the best of what I could out of the situation. Um, I positioned myself so I could get part of the trail and have kind of a something, at least a little bit of interest in the foreground, and then have the sky that was just ablaze on fire. There's some clouds that are, are right near the horizon. They're not big poofy clouds, but there's enough that they're the sun can really the sunlight's really reflecting off of them with the oranges and pinks and lavenders in the sunset. And and then there is some layers of like sandstone and some trees off in the distance. But the trail that you hike on is there. The the challenge with this, the light is not very you know, a ten minute window. There's also probably three hundred people walking up and down this trail constantly. And this bend that I have in the photo is the final bend you have to come around before you see Delicate Arch. So everybody, of course, just comes around that bend. There's no warning that they're coming around the bend either. It's just, you know, whoever happens to be coming at whatever point. So as I'm framing things up, I want that bend in the photo. But I, I also have people coming constantly in and out, in and out of of the arch, and and uh, it, it made it hard to get it. So I had to balance that, the people part, and trying to get the sunset. And I know the light's leaving, and it was kind of a stressful ten minutes trying trying to get an image out of this <laughs> and make it happen. Yeah. Plus, on top of all that, I had with me a few uh, young young kids who have shown an interest in photography. In fact, I'm doing a class with them every week right now. And I was traveling with them. They're friends of mine. They're family friends. So um, they had their Canon Rebels with them. And they were asking me too, like, what setting should I be using? What should I, how should yeah. I be doing this? I'm like, I don't know. Hold on just a second. I'm trying to get it myself. And, and it was it was really kind of fun. But so here, here's what I ended up doing. I had a, um, I had a, a 70 to 200 on my lens. The place I was shooting from for the arch uh, was one where I needed zoom. It, a wide angle would have made that arch be teeny tiny and it wouldn't have been really good photo. So I had my 70 to 200 on my camera when I turned and saw the sunset ablaze and knew I had minutes to react. So no way I was going to change lenses to go and do that. So I took it, uh, I went to 70 millimeters, the widest I could. And then I saw the the bend that I could put in the frame. I positioned myself, and you can't tell from the photo, but to the right of me, as I'm taking this image, I had about a foot space to a straight drop-off cliff that was probably 200, 300 feet in the air, too. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And so I'm really worried about that, too. Like, I can't go too much further right, or I'm going to fall off a cliff. It's fairly dark. And um, and I got to be careful here. There's people jostling, you know, trying to get... They're walking down from seeing the arts. They're walking back along the path. And I was kind of worried they might bump into me and just toss me off the cliff. <laughs> and it, it was tough. So um, what I ended up doing was 70 millimeters. I did an aperture of 5.6 and then shutter speed of 1 50th of a second. And I was worried about it because I was at 70 millimeters, but I do have a stabilization on the lens. And so um, I just hoped I could hand hold it good enough. There was no way of getting a tripod set up. Not enough time to do that, to put this on a tripod and try to position it. Plus the the pathway people are trying to walk by, so the tripod would be in their way. And then um, I, I had to do ISO 400 just to make all of that kind of work together. Uh, you know, my thinking there was I need an aperture where, and I'm crop sensor, so I have a, a larger depth of field than you do on full frame. So five six, I thought that might be enough. This path, this turn in the path, I'm at seventy millimeters, so this turn in the path is far enough away from me. I think I'm probably close to infinity focus right there. At five six, that's far enough away, and then um, and then uh, the shutter speed was. Um, you know, one fiftieth was I hoped okay with the image stabilization, and then just bring up the ISO to to make the exposure work. And I had to make those decisions like really, really fast. What am I going to do to to catch this, get this shot? And uh, and then I did, and and it worked out really, really well. I also did turn on really quickly while I was setting this up, just to give me options. I turned on bracketing. So that I would get three shots of different exposures. I did them a full stop apart. Just so that if I if I completely missed where I was at, I'd have two other options. Maybe be able to pull this out and, and get what I needed. It turned out my middle exposure, the one that I was setting settings for, 
was what I wanted and what I needed and what I produced the image from. But um, that that was kind of what I was thinking about. So I have one that's that's in portrait orientation. I have another where it's in more of a landscape orientation that was a few minutes later. And the sunset is is going down more. It looks a little brighter overall in the exposure, but it's just how I processed it. I, I kind of liked how it looked that way. But same exact settings. I just rotated my camera and took a, another bracket of shots um, with it being there. And I had to wait a little bit in between the two shots because people were walking by on mm-hmm. the path. And I had to wait. So that that's the story behind it, Brent. What, what do you think? Would you have changed anything? Yeah, in your vertical, or excuse me, your horizontal, you have a... a- couple right in the middle underneath the the arch as well it looks like they're pretty small they kind of blend in with the rocks but i think we got some people in there too and uh in the vertical one they're gone so um i'm not seeing a whole lot of resolution but as i kind of zoom in yeah that's definitely people uh anyway um this is part of the challenge i think as as you're talking i was following along i have an account with Mm alltrails.com which which can tell me all the description it shows me the the um you know the the increase of elevation and such like that so i can kind of get a lay of the land and i'm also following along as you're at the site on a satellite you know google maps uh, satellite (laughs) view and when you say you know that off to the right that cliff is 300 feet you just don't get that when you're looking at the satellite view and that is definitely something to certainly be thinking about you've got the kids with you as well but i think this is part of the challenge that we have when we go to these iconic locations because it seems to me whether or not I think we're thinking about it directly or whatever, but there's a certain level of almost pressure there because it's such an awesome location. We have to get a good image. Right. And part of me says, well, that and people, more more so the people, are some of the reasons why I tend to not put so much emphasis on shooting the icons, but... If I have an opportunity, I always want to make sure I do get the icons because let's face it, there's a reason they're an icon. In these, in this shot, you know, these shots with what you're saying, um, you know, with where you were standing and 300 people there, you know, it certainly sounds to me you did about the the best you probably could have done. Especially as I'm looking at the map, you know, where I'm looking at the satellite photo and just trying to see, you know, what options do you have? Where could you have gone? What could you do otherwise to try and frame up this image and with the sea of people there you know if if you had it all to yourself you have a few more options but with the sea of people there, you just don't have those options and then like you said with the sky going on fire behind you it's kind of like oh shoot (laughs) you know could i run over there to get to the other side and as again i'm looking at it you might have been able to elbow your way but then framing it up to get it a good shot, I just don't see that happening uh, with the angle that everything was at. You're not going to be able to get the sense of the arch and everything like that. So uh, as far as everything considered, you know, shooting from where you're at, helping the kids get their shots, I mean, it certainly is a, a great shot. We got some good color. We have some nice cloud. The fact that we have the moon in the horizontal image, uh, I think, adds to it. And... And so, yeah, I think there's some good things here, but, you know, does it, does it, um, it's the kind of thing where you always wish you had more time too. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And he just didn't have more time. So even if you were, you know, it sounds like even if you had gotten there early and you had staked yourself out, as far as the, the quality of the light, you just didn't have more time. That just wasn't a possibility. So, um, this is one of those things too though the the story is is definitely interesting there's lots to learn from here and that's uh the value in it and it helps us illustrate the value of the just what goes on to learn from it and if we get a chance to go back it's just part of something that's in your mind and and you'll have that much more experience to hopefully get a Whatever more means more meaningful right, to you right, or, or right. what have you. Because that's what it sounds like to me when you're saying it, when you're telling this story. Um, it sounds like to me what you're saying, what you, what, you know, by not saying it is that you like the image, but you just wish you could have done more. Is, is, am I wrong in that? With the arch itself? Yeah. We were the wrong. It's the wrong time. You don't want yeah. to try to do sunset. That It's not 
It's not a compelling yeah. image at sunset. Just never will be. Now, it could be. I think that if it was uh, the moon was in a, a new moon phase, Milky yeah. Way could end up being in there, and then then that would be a, a another stunning yeah. option. Would be really great. Yeah. But it was also like it, our vacation timing just happened to be that it was almost a full moon. Yeah. So that that cut out that too. We we I had t- several options or times I wanted to do astro and then the moon was just killing it. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, the the couple that's there, yeah, I've, on the arch picture, that's a a guy proposing. So, oh, nice. <laughs> so they I took that picture and then I sent it to them so that they could Very have that. Very cool. Yeah. That that should be good memory. So with that, it, it's definitely going to be a stunning picture for that the couple for sure. Of course. They're, they're going to love that. They're going to they're going to think it's great. But and you know, if if you're scrolling through on Instagram, are you going to stop at this arch? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> you're not yeah. going to stop at this arch picture. Okay, so part of the point of this was the story that went into it, the settings I ended up at really don't matter that much. I just kind of explained why I did the settings I did. But it's it's this scene was behind me. And tonight, or that night, when I was there to take these photos, the the photo was behind me. This photo in front of me wasn't all that spectacular. It was the, the shot was behind me. That's where it was. And I'm really glad I was making sure I looked around and trying to find other shots because I took the safe, like, okay, I got my picture of the arch. It's not great, but it's, I have a picture. What else is here that I can try to get a better shot of? And I, I'm glad I looked around another position that uh, ended up working out really well that same night, same time there at the arch. We stayed there for a long time just looking for other options. Um, there was a road that you could see from the, this high area I was at with the delicate arch. And that road was being lit by all of the car lights as they were coming and going in the park. And so we waited until there was dark enough that I could do a long exposure and capture those lights and make light trails through this road and have the pretty sandstone rock formations that were there in the image as well. So this was uh, much later um, after taking the first few photos. Sun had totally, well, not totally, you can see some pinkish clouds at the very top of the scene in the background, but the sky was mostly uh, not a factor anymore. And uh, and so I, I took uh, three separate exposures because there weren't enough cars on the road to have it the entire length of the, lo- the road all lit up at once. I had to have take several exposures to try to get it with different parts of the road lit up. And uh, actually, I probably took more than three. It's just these three were the ones that made it. So I got the whole road lit up. And so they are, um, I'm at a focal length of about 85 millimeters on this. I used an aperture of nine and that allowed me, an aperture of nine allowed me to have a shutter speed of 25 seconds and then ISO 100. And then uh, just so I just took shot after shot. I probably I bet I took about 10 or so just because I, I couldn't tell. You can't tell by watching if you think you've got the lights <laughs> across all the road. You mm-hmm. just have to kind of see what the exposure is. So I, I took several and I was looking I was like, OK, I think I've got this section and that section. And then just kept taking shots until I felt pretty sure I had the entire road lit up and sure enough got home and and blended them together in photoshop just used screen mode so that the highlights would come through and uh, and it looks it looks great to be able to have that there so this is another shot that was available from my location up at delicate arch that i'm really glad i looked around to see that there were other opportunities to be able to get fun and more impressive kinds of shots given that the arch just wasn't very impressive that night. It just what the, in the situation it was in didn't make a stunning kind of photo opportunity. So what do you think, Brent? Yeah, yeah cool. Th- this is the kind of thing that really starts to excite me about locations is just finding that extra something that has a high level of interest but is not totally not what your, your icon is or icon is about. Uh, with that kind of light streak and co- combining with a composite in Photoshop, certainly I've done that technique. And so you've got the the right idea down to get that the, those lights flowing all the way the way you need it to be. So the road is visible in the entire frame as far as where the road is in the frame. 
The only thing I think I would look to do, if it's possible, I don't know if you could step yourself to the left just a little bit to provide some separation from the road and this outcropping of rock that's happening in the foreground. Yep, I thought the same. It would have been good. And then I would probably go to zoom in just a little bit more, too, because that area in the foreground is 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 not as interesting as the other items and so if you zoom in just a little more then you have you can still have that rock crop outcrop that would be in the lower right hand corner a little more separation between it and the road but then the road becomes more prominent in your overall frame and i think that could be really cool uh, to have that keeping the clouds you know i think there's some value in there that the little bit of clouds that you have i right. wouldn't crop it like that it's just uh that getting some of that lower portion cropped out would would be an approach that i would look at anyway yep i was wishing i could go further left but i had a cliff limiting yeah. ah, limiting where those, i could go <laughs> those cliffs yeah Man. it was it was again right this is the like left edge of the cliff we were on so i have i have images from both sides of both you know edges of the cliff of the area you're on and Man. uh it, it yeah wouldn't wouldn't work so i was like oh it would be better if i could just get that <laughs> perspective changed just a little bit but oh my goodness yeah that's nuts but at least this is still a uh to me a better shot than what i could get of the arch the arch just wasn't that interesting that night it sure. would be much better uh if i was planning a trip now i know i i would actually flip-flop two things because i also went to dead horse point we took some pictures there I'm not sharing any of those yet. I haven't even processed them yet. But um, we should have flip-flopped the two visits. Dead Horse Point, we went there at sunrise, and it faces mainly west, and so sunrise was not stellar, and arches or delicate arch was better at sunrise. So I should have swapped those two visits, and <clears throat> I could have done a better job of planning that. We just, I just didn't spend the time to do it, so... Um, but I learned, and now uh, for future yeah. trips, I'll I'll make sure to kind of swap those two kinds of things. I know when to be there, and and I still am happy that I I got some shots that were really fun. So let, let's move on to one more, and then Brent, cool. we'll I think we'll have time for you to talk about a couple of yours too. Um, the last one that I wanted to share was not at Arches. This was just from me here in Harriman, Utah, and. <clears throat> We have a bunch of forest fires. I don't know if they're forest or not, but there's a lot of fires that are happening. It may just be like a lot of sagebrush fields that are are burning. It's just been so dry for so long. We haven't had rain in a long time. And uh, and fireworks or just it gets so hot too. It's really, it's a tinderbox waiting to start. We have it happen almost every year that we just burn up a whole bunch of the, <laughs> the land in the state. And, um, and so there's smoke. There's a lot of smoke in the air right now. It doesn't look like it is a big deal to the naked eye as you're looking at the moon coming up. It doesn't look exactly like this image that I have. Um, but when you do an exposure that's a little longer than what your eyes see, it becomes very apparent about just how much smoke there, there is in the air. Mm-hmm. And it, it transforms a moon photo from something that looks like your traditional moonrise to something that makes it look like it's the sun almost. Mm-hmm. There's that much reflection. There's that much of the light from the moon showing up in the smoke that it, it kind of transforms it into doing that. Now, that said, this is still like it's pretty dark when the moonrise happens. So you don't have the moon at twilight time where you could try to get a single exposure and and get this scene. It's just happening too late for the moonrise. And so it meant I knew it meant I had to do two different exposures for this. There's no way to get detail in the moon and also get the any kind of detail in the foreground or see the foreground at all. So, uh, so I knew I had to do that. And that meant I had to like switch settings really fast too. my goal with this. So I, I did two different sessions for shooting this. And that, I think it's a good thing to share that too. So that people can see, like, I didn't just nail it the first time. Like I, I tried once I had to learn some things. And then the good thing is the moon rose again the next day <laughs> and I can go try again. That's right. <laughs> so, um, so I, the first night when I tried it, I actually didn't even think of doing it. We, we'd just barely been back from our trip and I had a neighbor text me and said, man, the moon looks cool tonight. And so I went and looked and it had already risen a lot. And so I took some photos. They were okay. They weren't what I wanted. But then I thought in my head as I was taking those shots the night before this, I thought, 
I can do better than this. What I really want to capture is I want to get the moon just coming up over the mountains mm-hmm. like the sun would be and capture that. So that's what I planned for. I planned my location. I knew I used photo pills to plan that out. I knew when this, the moon was going to rise up over the mountain. And photo pills was totally right, by the way. It was perfect for me to know that. And I got there early enough that I, in case it wasn't right and it came up a little earlier than, than it said, that I would be ready to do it and go. And so I was all set up with my location. I had this foreground that, um, that I wanted. And, um, and then I waited for the moon to come up. What I didn't anticipate well was just how much that moon is cruising as it comes up over the mm-hmm. mountains. It is, I think you, I had a total of 30 seconds from seeing the moon peak out to it being fully up over the mountain range. Oh my goodness. It yeah. was really, really fast. And I had a guess on what settings I wanted to use for the moon exposure what I didn't account for was how long it was going to take me to switch my settings for the foreground exposure. Yeah. And by the time I got it together, (laughs) the moon is up over the mountain ridge. So if I may try it again tonight, we'll see what my family is doing, but, (laughs) but I may try it tonight. Now that I kind of nailed what settings it is that I wanted. And my part of the problem was I had some certain settings dialed in based on the experience from the night before but then as I went and did it, it, I wasn't happy with the moon exposure. So I was monkeying with settings and the thing's just rising like crazy. And I thought, my goodness, I can't believe how fast that comes up over the mountain range. So we'll see. Now that I have some settings to try, maybe I'll see if I can get out there and, and try to capture it while it is still um, behind the mountain, partially behind the mountain, and see if I can I can improve it. But it still ends up being a, a really fun shot because it's still the moon is low enough to the horizon that I can get the moon in a really good like thirds line uh, composition uh-huh. wise and still have like a fun landscape cliff scene in front of it. And you can see the smoke in the air and it, it made for a, a really fun shot. The settings that I ended up using, uh, I'm, I'm shooting at a, a focal length of 200 millimeters. I, if I could, I, I don't have anything longer than that. So if I had something more like 300, I might even opt to do that and just get even a little tighter on the moon, but it's pretty decent at 200 millimeters. And then uh, for the foreground uh, exposure, I did aperture of f4, shutter speed of eight seconds, and an ISO of 800. And then for the moon exposure, same aperture four, shutter is one eighth of a second, and ISO 800. So then just blur right. them together in Photoshop, and uh, and that was it was really fun. I'm I'm pretty happy with the image. I if I have time, I'm going to try one more time to try to catch it down further by the mountain. What'd you think, Brent? And, and of course, the moon rises a lot later, one day later. So, you know, things are still going to change as, yeah, you yeah. know, from, from one day to the next. Um, the thing about this, you mentioned about the potential of going longer if you had a longer lens. I wouldn't recommend myself going too much longer because the... The overall composition still has, a, I think, has a. It is your point of value. You've got the the mountain ridge, the the length and the the undulations of the line. You've got the layering happening with the foreground ridge, and then you have the mountain ridge behind it, and then you have the moon behind that. So we still get that sense of that depth that's being created, and so that's I think still very valuable. So I just wouldn't want to lose that. Now, if you were going to go 300 and you were to find something that would make this a vertical image, you would still have that that feeling of that depth with all the layering happening, and you'd still be able to keep that foreground element in the frame. Uh, but then you would just be changing it to a vertical type image. But when you cut that moon off with the mountain ridge too, zooming in, way in on that could also be very interesting. Right, so right. S- still some good things to think about. But yeah, this is this is a really great exercise of blending those exposures. And you also mentioned something about pre-visualization where you're just like, ooh, I know where I want to go. I want to set this up. I want to you know, use the photo pills and that's the beauty of photo pills. It is all math. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And so it's rarely, you know, if it's wrong, it's probably because we typed our settings in wrong and we typed our something in wrong and it's uh, an app like photo pills is just awesome. And then it helps us, you know, enact, uh, envision our creativity and, and make it happen. Right. 
Yep. Yeah. I, the, you're right. I, I may capture the moon just coming over the mountain and decide, actually, I like the composition about how this one worked out better. Yeah. 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 Well, I, this, this one's very pleasing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fun. I, I really like it. Um, okay. So Brent, tell us about the images that you have to share. Yeah. So the first one I'm going to talk about is, uh Neowise over wheat. I have shared some in the Facebook group a, a while back as I was shooting these Neowise comets, and then I'll be going a lot more in detail in Latitude Photography podcast. But on this image, I won't uh, actually cover there since we're covering it here. But this image was a lot of fun to make. It was one of the first sessions that I was out shooting. I went about 30 miles north of town, and Walla Walla is a fairly small town anyway. When you go 30 miles, I mean, you're in the middle of absolute nowhere. And it was also an extremely calm day, so there was no wind, or calm night, I should say. There's no wind blowing, so I had lots of time to think about what I wanted to do with my foreground as it relates to, you know, do I do a long exposure? Do I worry about the wind blowing the wheat and stuff like that? I didn't have to worry about it at all. It was so calm. And... So this shot is actually one of the last shots I made because I had framed up an old building, an old abandoned farmhouse type building with the comet shooting through a window and other things like that and just trying to, you know, maximize my use of this building. And um, then as I was about done and ready to pack it up, I was just like, you know, when I was first thinking about this whole experience anyway, I was just like, I want it over a wheat field. But when I was envisioning wheat fields, I was envisioning a slightly more rolling hill, too. I wasn't envisioning a flat wheat field. So I kind of discounted it when I got there because I also knew this is where the this house was. And so I kind of made that decision. I'm going to go get this, this abandoned house. Right. And I thought, well, why don't I try this? Why don't I get out there, cross the road, basically, is all I had to do and set it up with this wheat and then get it going. And so that's what I did. And uh, this is one single exposure with barely any post-production. I mean, it is just so minimal in the post-production. So uh, ISO 6400, 18 millimeters, and this is on the Sony A6400, which is also a crop sensor. Uh F4 at 10 seconds. So it really brings in the star's nicely you can see them very well the the comet is very visible we've got the tail rising up the top of the image and so i use a flashlight to brighten up the field Uh and i had done this a couple of times with different just testing it out trying to to get it to work and on this particular one it worked just beautifully and I was so surprised at how far I was able to get that flashlight to reach. <laughs> <laughs> at 6400 ISO, you can do a lot with a flashlight. But the thing about this flashlight, too, as most flashlights, it's very concentrated in the very center. And then it has this other, you know, this fall-off edge, if you will, where it's just not as bright. And so what I realized I had to do is, you know, this is probably, I'm going to take a guess and say maybe the 15th attempt at this, maybe 10th attempt, I don't know. But what I had, what I realized I ended up having to do was I just needed to not shine the concentrated spot of that flashlight on the wheat itself and let the light fall off area, the edge of the flashlight, let that illuminate the wheat. And then that's basically because I I kept it as much to the horizon as possible, that concentrated area. And that's what was basically able to brighten out the field so stinking far out there. Now, I also had a couple of shots where some traffic was driving by, and those were basically ruined because those lights are just really bright. But by taking that flashlight and I go back and forth, left to right, left to right, left to right, just constantly during that 10 seconds, and then playing around with it. Do I need it for the full 10 seconds? Do I only need it for five seconds? What you know, Just experimenting and seeing what I need there. I was able to get a shot like this where the wheat is colorful, it's brilliant, and it's well-balanced with the um, with the comet and the nighttime sky. Now, certainly the comet is to the northwest, so we're not getting any of the southern stuff. The moon was uh, in a new moon, close to new moon phase on this day, so very little light pollution otherwise. Um, I'm using the Adobe Landscape Profile in the processing, you know, in, in Lightroom, the temp is set to 3626, tint at 16, clarity is bumped up to 14, and then in the HSL saturation 
area, the HSL tab under saturation, I set orange to negative 20, yellow to negative 14. And then my standard sharpening that I do with as a starting point for every image, I set the sharpening amount to 25, which is the old Adobe standard. Now they've bumped it to 40 for some reason. And then I set my detail to 75, which is a deconvolution sharpening whatever. Just purely as starting points, and I haven't really assessed anything. Do I need to stay with those for my going forward or whatnot? But um, And then I did a slight amount of luminance noise reduction, and that's it. So as far as bumping exposure or anything like that, nothing like that happened. It was all almost perfectly done in camera, just a few tweaks in post-production. And it came out decently well. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very good image. You, listeners, you're going you're to want to check it out for sure. If you haven't seen it in the Facebook group already, I think, Brent, you did share it there, right? In the Master of Photography Facebook group. Uh, if it wasn't, this one is a different one that I did, which is a technically a composite where um, I'm going to talk about that on the Latitude podcast, I think, as well. But I can also share that in the Facebook group again to compare the two. And that is, with the composite, it's the same exact framing. But what I ended up doing was I had different settings. And I used the flashlight exposure, the flash lit, I should say, exposure, to basically be like a luminosity bump. So along the ideas of what we can think about luminosity masking, where we might say, oh, if I have two different exposures, I'm going to blend this and that and whatever else. Well, in a nighttime shot, and since there's no wind blowing and everything else like that, my flashlight was able to render these exactly, but I also did it at a much lower ISO. And so I have a lot less noise in that foreground image for the one that I, th I think that's the one I shared in the Facebook group earlier. So it was a lot more work involved, a lot more technical work on the back end, but that gave me a more technically sound image with a lower ISO is what it boiled down to. I see. Okay. By the way, I have a recommendation for you on a flashlight. Please. Yes. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to look on Amazon right now to see if the same one is available and I don't see it there, but this, this is a, a Duracell flashlight that's LED Okay, and but the the thing that's cool about it, and the reason I bought it was somebody along the way recommended this to me as one that doesn't have that hotspot. Oh, nice! Um, it can. It has like a, a telescoping front element on the flashlight, okay. and when it's fully extended, it kind of looks like your traditional flashlight that has the hotspot. And then, but when you contract it, it widens everything out, kind of diffusing the light a little i guess you you would say and it makes so it doesn't have a hot spot and but it's incredibly bright it's a 700 lumen light and yeah. so um so we we used it to do some light painting of the arch while we were there for example the the shots didn't end up being anything worth sharing did just but it was fun to like show the kids how we could light that yeah. up and how like the arch it made it look like it was daytime altogether yeah. we had the exposure long so we saw a sky and foreground that was there and then the arch was well lit because of the flashlight and it was it was fun to do not worth it, they weren't stunning images but um if you're looking for a flashlight that doesn't have the hotspot, you should check this out and see see if you yeah, like it. I cool. just don't see a link. I see a 500 lumen and a 1,000 lumen. I don't see the 700 on Amazon. But maybe I'll, I'll see if I can find cool. what it is. I, I, I don't see up. any model names. It just says Duracell 700. So Okay. <laughs> but it's really cool. All right. Uh, nice. I love it. The, what a shot with the fields. And I'm, I'm amazed that Neowise looked that big in an 18 millimeter shot. Cause my experience with it was I couldn't even see the comet with, <laughs> with a really wide angle lens. So that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. So certainly the further South you get, yeah, I think we, yeah. you, 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 there's just some difficult, slightly, slightly more difficulties. Um, I don't know what your noise, your noise, your light pollution is there where you are at either. If you had any or not, I don't know. Um, weren't you out pretty far when you were, when you were doing that? Yeah. So I, I had one night where I got it pretty well and, um, it was before the fires, the okay. smoke from the fires had really changed it. it, it when I went other nights later, it was like a few days later, the fires had started enough that I, there was impossible. There was just no yeah. way with the smoke in the air to, to see it anymore, which is too bad. But yeah, my, I was shooting at like, boy, I think it was like 130 millimeters or something. Just to make it so I could I could see the thing 
in comparison to my foreground at all. It, like the wow. size of my comet looks very similar to the size of yours. So I guess maybe, yeah, your, the no, more north you were made it that much of a difference. Yeah. And then I also communicated briefly with a listener in Alaska, and he was saying they're too far north because they oh, never really? get past that. You know, because the sun is just always, oh, if right. not completely up, it's it's still bright at nighttime. So they just never actually saw it um, as anywhere nearly as brilliantly as we saw it here. And um, yeah, I think uh, southern Canada, the northern U.S., I think was probably the best viewing angles because of how far north it was, uh, the, the comet itself is, and um, in the path it was taking. But that was something when we did our you know shooting Neowise episode and you inserted that yeah. record scratch and the, and the correction i was like yep <laughs> you know it wasn't everyone's experience and that one image that i had commented on from kurt kai's uh i hadn't realized he was out at 105 millimeters on that particular right. image that he was that he had shared and i was like okay yeah that that makes sense and so when i got out again a couple times later uh, I was experimenting with longer distances as well, for sure, and got a few different options. So, yeah, good experience, and uh, I'm just really pleased how this particular one came out with that flashlight. I was actually kind of shocked that I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> Which I, 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 think, I got it. <laughs> I think that's another good point for listeners. Like, how long have you been shooting, Brent? How many years? Uh, professionally, since '97, and so we're still at a point where we're like. I'm planning. I think I know exactly what I want. I want it to work out. And then when it just become comes out like this, you're like, wow, that even exceeded my expectations. Yes. That was amazing. Yes. It still happens. Like it, it shooting is it's just a, a constant path. It's we talk about it. I mean, it's the theme mm-hmm. of our show, right? The the path towards mastering the art of photography. And I think the biggest key that I'd like listeners to take away from this is it's it's not exact the the thing you need to do is get enough experience and learn enough about it that you know how to react you can yeah. take an image uh you know set an exposure take an image and be like okay do i like this am i happy with this is there something more i can do should i change my position should i change exposure settings how can i respond based on what i just captured to improve on it and when you go take the images it, Brent, how many how many images do you think you took for this wheat field Oh, goodness. Um, I could look in my library, but I would say at least 40, if not more. Right. And and you ended up, you know, one of them was the one that was the best of the group that you liked the best. But getting there, I think there's this mindset a lot have, and maybe there's reasons like you have like family waiting for you. I've had that situation a lot. Oh, yeah. They're like, are you done yet? Come on. <laughs> you know, that limit how much you're going to shoot. But um, don't feel bad if when you get out there, you have to take 50 pictures just to try to get one that you liked and that, that you uh, feel like is your best from the night or whatever. That It's totally fine. And thank goodness we have that capability with digital cameras now so that it's not such a big deal to take 50 images in a night. And it doesn't mm-hmm. cost us you know, all of the money to get it developed and, and all of that. It, what, a, what an age we live in. And I, I hope listeners will take like a, a positive angle out of this or a positive view of like their own shooting and not feel bad that it, may, it might take them some shots before they, they get what it is that they want. Or if you don't know how to do this stuff, just keep learning about all of the exposure triangle. Keep listening to us talk about it. It will come. Don't don't give up. It will come, and you can do this. Even if yeah, you absolutely. don't have you know thirty thousand dollars of camera equipment, you don't you don't have to have that to be able to do it. You just have to get the skill set and the knowledge, and and you can do amazing things even with very inexpensive equipment. All right. Well, and that's partly the reason why I specifically chose the sixty four hundred with this first shoot. You know, I was just like. Literally, I had the camera and a tripod. That's all I went out with. How uh-huh. lightweight of a system is that? Nice. But that's, you know, very much, you know, a, a very affordable, if you want to call it a consumer-grade camera, whatever. But that's why I chose this one due to my first shoot with it. Because I was like, anyone with whatever camera you have, as long as it's within five years old or newer, you're going to be able to get some good stuff. And uh, even if it's five years old or older, you'll still be able to get some good stuff, I'm sure. It's just maybe there's some technical issues that might keep you from getting it so sharply rendered with the stars and stuff like that. But yeah, I was just like, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm, I'm just going to leave my 5D at home and I'm going to take out my 6400 and just have some fun with it. And it was great. 
That's awesome. And if it doesn't work, hopefully you can go the next night and try it out. You know, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I ended up doing three total shoots on this one. There you so, go uh, on Neo Wise. So I was I was very pleased. And I'm uh, doing three shoots on my Moonshot. I'm gonna. I hope I'm nice. gonna try one more time and see if I can try the one when it's just coming over the mountains and see see what happens. So anyway, absolutely. All right, last shot, Brant. What do you What do you have? Oh, do we have time? All right. Yeah. Um, I mean, quickly, let's, let's just go through it. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and fire through it. So Palouse Falls with a rainbow. And some of you may have heard about this because I did talk about it briefly with Bree Stockwell on the Latitude Photo Podcast, but I wanted to share it with a larger audience here, uh, the rest of you guys. Uh, and of course, certainly, Jeff, to get your feedback a little bit too. But it was a very bright and clear day. And Palouse Falls, it is out in the desert, basically. You've got uh, some scrub brush kind of going on. Uh, it's 198-foot falls. And in the spring, early summer, there's usually quite a bit of water like we had on this one. Although I've seen it with about three times more water but when it's initial spring runoff. But with it being such a bright, clear day, there's just zero clouds in the sky and there's just not that much interest and so as we walked to the rim, because you've got this roughly 400-foot cliff that you can look over, and we walked to the rim, I saw this rainbow down there. I was like, perfect. And, you know, I'm just inspecting the scene and trying to think, you know, where's the power in this image? What's really moving me? And I decided I really liked that rainbow, and I really liked the waterfall, but I didn't like all the stuff that was happening above this area and all the stuff that happened below it. So I decided to zoom in. And to grab a a shot across the scene, three different frames, and so it's at 200 millimeters, ISO 50, f22, one thirteenth of a second, so I can have a little bit of movement in the water, and then I also used a polarizer, and that allowed to have a nice wide panoramic slice of this item where all the energy of the water is coming down, crashing into the pool, all the mist is going. And then we have the only thing of color is that rainbow. And it's just gorgeous, you know, all the very intense. And I barely hardly did a thing to that in post-production as well. I might have scoochied the the um, the saturation just a hair, but otherwise this is very close to what was in camera as well. Is is it an actual panoramic shot, or did you just crop it to be panoramic? No, I, I three three frames. Mm-hmm. Okay, three frames uh, th- th- that I then stitched, which were not perfectly aligned. I don't have a pano head, so I'm just trying to uh-huh. go one shot and then move it over as as straightly as possible, so they're <laughs> perfectly aligned. And when I'm in Photoshop, because Lightroom couldn't align it properly uh-huh. because I was off, you know, I'm in, in Photoshop and I'm trying to manually align these things. And I realized because of the pattern of the rock, uh, the basalt rock in the background, I'm like, oh my goodness, I really screwed up here. <laughs> and then I was just like, you know what? But I was just like, er, I'm going to make this blend anyway. And so I just did a manual movement and... Um, because of the nature of the movement of the water and the mist and all that other stuff, it was quite easy to make it come out looking good anyway. So I was like, I'm just going to leave it because I can't have that much of an offset and then try and use content to wear fill or anything like that to make up for my mistakes. But yeah, thankfully it, it worked out okay still. That's cool. And you think in polarizer, is that so that you could get the rainbow better? Yeah, so it helps uh, tone down the rock a little bit, and then it, it can emphasize the the uh, rainbow just a hair, or you can eliminate the rainbow. So you got to right, be careful. Right. right. So you're you're. It's a circular polarizer. Yeah, standard circular polarizer. I think this one I was using is a is a standard, so it's two stops. And then another thing too with each frame, because the water is flowing and is a natural element, and the mist is doing its thing. I got about eight, five to eight frames of each framing, and then I would move, get five to eight frames, and then I would move, get five to eight frames. So I can then select the three frames that have the best chance at bridging from one frame to the next with the water flow. Because there's, it's kind of like what you did with your lights on your road, even though you didn't have a pano you still are basically blending those multiple cars and you're photographing the same car probably three different times. But then you have other cars coming through and you want it to all be a sea of color, a sea of light going down that road. Well, 
because of the nature of how the water is you know, being forced out and the mist is being forced out, it takes on different patterns and different shapes. And so there's basically kind of a cycle to that. So I figured if I can get between five and eight frames, I'll then be able to piece it together and select the right ones that has the best chance of blending smoothly. And so certainly a lot of them are not used, but of the ones, you know, the, the three items that did come together, they, they blended together fairly decently. Excellent. Yeah, fun image. I do wish I could see the top of the falls. <laughs> <laughs> That's so high above. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, I might have one. I'm pretty sure I have one where I do have the top of the falls, but I just didn't find it to be as dynamic because it does, doesn't focus you as much on the energy. And, I, it, and then, of course, I, I walked a little bit to the left so I can get that waterfalls, or excuse me, get, get that rainbow closer to the waterfall. And I just have to look at my library again and see what I what I have. I'm, I'm sure I have something like that. Well, and that would be the other decision point would be if, if the, the rainbow becomes really prominent in this image. And if you yeah. had to zoom out a lot to get the falls, the rainbow might not be so prominent anymore. So I'd rather it, have the prominent it, rainbow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it definitely loses its prominence because uh, it faded as you go up because that's not where the mist is. Right, the mist right. is down low. Right. Yep, and that makes sense. Uh, we we certainly had more rainbow down below further, but then there was no other interest down there. So this was just that slice of the balancing of where the interest is on the on the waterfall and on the rainbow. And I've gotten shots like this before of this waterfall, where I'm zooming in and just capturing that energy with no rainbow. And I definitely like it with the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, that makes total sense to make sure the rainbow's there. Yep. Very good. I hope. Well, let us know, listeners. Let us know if this was something that you enjoyed walking through these photos. We'll have the show notes so you can go and kind of review what it is we talked about. And uh, and if you found value in it, if you'd like to see us do more of these in the future as we get out and shoot. Um, I hope it inspires you. I hope it makes so that you want to get out there and shoot. That's the whole reason we do the show is just to try to inspire others and and help others uh, move down that path on towards mastering their photography. All right, let's go to doodads of the week. What do you have for Sprint? Well, you put yours in first. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to kind of go off of your your theme there. Um, so it kind of goes in line with what you have. And that is a, a, a backpack, a photo backpack by Think Tank Photo Urban Access 15. And I have the one, uh, I don't want to spoil your <laughs> yours. So I'll just say I have the one that you have. Yes. I love them both. And uh, this one is, it, it, I, I do like it, but... Um, I just wish it had the mind shift gear styling and fabrics because it's their think tank photo urban access. When I take it out and get it dirty, the fabric likes to hold on to the dirt. Okay. And it looks really smart and it looks really svelte and perfect and all that kind of stuff. And it's extremely versatile as far as the access to your gear and even the top section. Because the reason, one reason I like it, it has a top area that you can have access to separate from your camera gear storage. Well, that can be expanded and you can take away some camera gear storage and you can expand your top area for whether it's food or clothes or whatever uh-huh. you're going to put in there. Uh, you can expand that a little bit. So I love that uh, item of it. So it's just um, it, it's just a nice alternative, I guess you can say, to uh, to the other one that you that you wanted to do. But it's both of them are great bags. And if you were to twist my arm and say, well, Brent, what are you going to do as your overall all-around bag? I might. (laughs) It's so hard to say because it just depends. I decided actually because we're moving, everyone I think knows that all of just about all of my stuff is is packed up and in storage. Well, the one that's not in storage is the bag that you're going to talk about. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. I know you're a bag guy. You keep keep uh, pursuing the ultimate bag. And these two are so close to the ultimate bag, yes. <laughs> okay. I'm not a bag guy. Um, I investigate the bags. I, I stay up on the stuff coming out from Think Tank and MindShift, too. They're my favorite company for this kind of stuff. And it doesn't mean the other companies don't make good stuff, because there, there are definitely a lot of companies that produce really good bags. Um, and I know, I think Brian, 
McGuckin is also a big oh, bad guy. He's he's probably more of a no, bad guy than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I have stuck with this one for a really long time. My gear has been in this bag for uh, forever. Uh, I think it's a little over five years now that I've been using the same bag, and I have uh, a few others. And actually, I guess it depends on the purpose. If I'm going to be traveling on an airplane, I wouldn't necessarily use this bag. I have another yeah. one that has wheels that would be a little easier for transporting through the airport. But uh, on this trip that we just went on, I knew I was going to be doing hiking, and there was <laughs> you don't want an airport style bag to go hiking with, and uh, and this bag is just a, a really good bag for this. I do feel like it's a little bit expensive, but bags, good quality bags tend to be kind of expensive. So they're not outrageously priced in comparison to other good bags. It's just you get what you pay for and it, it costs a lot for the, for these bags. So mm-hmm. this is the Mindshift Gear Backlight 26L backpack. It's woodland green. And I, I in particular, like that aspect. It's one of my three points about what I like about this. It's $250. So yeah, ouch, that's, that's going to sting a little <laughs> if you go to buy a bag at $250. But like I said, this, this thing will last. I've been using it for five years. I've been hiking all over Utah with this bag. And it still looks brand new to the day I got it. It's just wearing extremely well. Everything is still functional. I haven't had any zippers break. I, all the compartments inside I'm moving them around constantly to accommodate the gear that I'm, I have and want to carry with me. It, it does really, really well. So here's the three things I like about it. First off, it's big. It's 26 liter bag is a big bag. It can store a lot of gear. I took with me two DSLR cameras. I had a 24 to 70, a 70 to 200, a 14 millimeter prime, an 11 to 16, and 50. So that's one, two, three, four, five lenses and a tripod. I have a few other odds and ends in there too, filters and so on. So it, it, it packs a lot. My bag was heavy. I probably had, I think it was over 50 pounds. <laughs> that I was dragging all over Southern Utah and Moab. The second thing is, um, it's as comfortable a backpack as you can have when something weighs 50 pounds <laughs> or whatever it is. Uh, it's it, so it, it's, it's not super fun to be hiking around in, you know, hundred degree temperatures and, um, and have that there, but it's, it's got a nice padding layer between the gear and your back. It's got good padded straps. It has chest straps and a, uh, waist strap. So you can really kind of take some of the weight off of your back and put up, apply it to your hips, which is really good when you have big weight for your backpack. And it, it just does a really good job of making it be as best you can. It's still 50 pounds though. It's still, it's still tough to <laughs> take all that gear around with you everywhere, but I'm sure glad I did because I used every bit of it. I used all those lenses as I was out and I had full flexibility to be able to shoot whatever I wanted and finding those shots like we talked about. Um, The third thing I like is going back to that woodland green color. This backpack, I would kind of call it almost neon green, actually, the way that it's colored. (laughs) It's, It's a very bright green. And as such, it doesn't stick out like it's a uh, a camera bag. It looks like it's, you know, someone's clothes <laughs> for, for a backpacking trip. And I, I kind of like that because it makes it just a little bit less of a target for someone to try to, you know, break into your car to steal it out of it. And I, I certainly had it in my car some instead of always with me. It, um, I would bring it in at night most of the time. But it, it was in the car some um, when I was not there. And I, I wasn't as worried about it because it wasn't screaming to people expensive camera equipment inside. It was saying, this could be just, you know, my underwear. So not worth it to steal that. And, uh, and that's good. So I, I yeah. love this bag holds up really well. I can highly recommend it and stand behind it that uh, you won't be disappointed in the quality of the bag and it, it stores a whole lot of gear. So that's my doodad of the week. Awesome. Yeah. And that's really the difference I think between these bags is just how much they can hold and that's why i'm using this bag now is because it holds everything and more of of what i have and if you do need to be in the airplane then the urban access 15 fits beautifully in the plane and i've even had it under some airplanes seats I, i i can fit it underneath like a 737 seat in front of me it's it's a little tight down there, but it fits. Uh-huh. And that's one thing I really like about it as well. So um, that's my main deciding factor is how do I need to use it? Then I go to one pack or the other. Right. And I definitely have taken this on an airplane. So it it, 
it totally fits in in the at least the overheads. I don't know the overheads. Sure, it might yeah. be hard underneath your feet, but it definitely fits in the overhead. So it's it can be that it's just if you know you're not going to be hiking around, there's better right. options for airplanes. All right. I want to remind everyone, masterphotographypodcast.com is where you can go for the show notes. And to see these images that we just talked about, go visit the website so you can see them. Love to have you comment on them in the post on the website or in the Facebook group. And that's Master Photography Podcast. You can search for it or there's links in the show notes over to it. You do have to ask to join that group. We want to keep the spammers and the bots out of there. We want only listeners in the group. So you have to answer a question of naming a host. And uh, for this episode, that could be Jeff or Brent. And then we'll know that you listened and you came on in. Still see tons of people saying, I just, I, I'm going to go listen right now. I'm like, that's great. Come, yeah. come ask to join again when you, after you've listened and you know the name of a host. <laughs> that's right. Um, all right. So you can find me at uh, jsharmanphotos.com for my work or my other podcast is phototacopodcast.com where I talk about a lot of technical topics and try to make it as easy as possible for what my wife calls normal people to understand. <laughs> and, uh, and so you can go check that out too. I'll, I'll have my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts in there as well. Brent, where can people find you? So usually you can find me at my website, brentbergherm.com. Right now I have it in maintenance mode, but if you have an account on my website already, you can click on the link and you can still log in and access what you need. But Instagram as well, at Brent Bergherm. And since my website is uh, in transition in a whole bunch of uh, making things for Latitude Photography School, if you want to get on the list to be announced, you know, be, be notified the, the moment that becomes available, uh, get on that list. We have a link in the show notes. And then I have another email list item if you're interested for being notified only of my live sessions. I've started doing a few live sessions in the evenings once a week. I probably won't be able to do it next week, but it's just where I do a photo review of listener submitted images. And um, would love to have you be a, you know be a part of that. And so I invite you to look at that. And I just do that on my YouTube channel. So anyone who has access to the internet, of course, is welcome to just dial in there and take a look at those things when we do those. Excellent. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it inspires you to get out there and shoot. Maybe try something new. If you haven't done um, any of the landscape kind of photography that we just talked about, get out there and give it a try. It's so much fun. And we'll see you again in another seven days. Bye.